Hey everybody, it's Engineer Miles here, coming to you from self-exile in Denton, Texas, bringing you another fantastic episode of America's leading podcast, Low Profile with Markley Morrison. Today on the show, we feature an interview with Michael Corcoran, who wrote a fantastic book about Washington Phillips, along with a CD of his completed recordings. If you haven't done so already, it would really help us out if you could rate and review us on iTunes and uh, smash the five stars on there. And uh, if you're able to, contribute to the Patreon. That would be a really nice way to help keep the show going. If you don't have the means right now, don't worry about it. Just enjoy the show and uh, don't, yeah, don't worry about it. Anyways, I love you all. I hope you're staying safe. I hope you're staying healthy. I hope you're staying indoors as much as possible. Now, on to the show. Washington Phillips was a little-known gospel singer and jack-leg preacher in the early 20th century. He recorded 18 songs for Columbia Records between 1927 and 1929 when he was just shy of 50 years old. The instrument you can hear him playing here is an invention which he called a manzarine. He was said to have died in an insane asylum in 1937, but more recent research by a man named Michael Corcoran has since debunked that theory and other mysteries about this man in his 100-page book and CD, Washington Phillips and His Manzarine Dreams. Today, we're going to be speaking with Michael about his excursions on his quest for the truth about this obscure gospel blues musician from Texas. Michael, thank you for joining us on Low Profile. Can you tell our listeners where you are calling from? Uh, I'm in Austin, Texas. You're in Austin. Right. I've been I've been here since about 1984. I moved away a little bit, but I'm mostly based in Austin. And what brought you to Austin? I had a I was from Honolulu, and I had a biker T-shirt business with a tattoo artist, and uh, we had a lot of business. And every time, you can't really uh, put stuff on a uh, bulk mail from Hawaii. You have to you have to send everything first class. Sure. sure. This is a long, this is a long story, but uh, so we wanted to go someplace in the middle of the country so we could just uh, send the t-shirts out bulk mail and save us a lot of money on uh, postage. So we just picked Austin. Uh, I had a friend who was the uh, she was married to one of the Cramps, uh, Brian Gregory. Oh wow! And oh, she neat. sent me she sent me a postcard from Austin and saying you can't believe this. This is Texas, but it doesn't feel like Texas. And it was a picture of Lux Interior in, in the crowd and. Uh, she wrote it on the back, and then so I had that. And then my my partner uh, Rollo, the tattoo artist, he got a newsletter from uh, 
a group called the Dallas County Jug Band with a guy named Travis, uh, I can't remember his last name right now, but they were based in Austin too. So we just took that as an omen that that's where we should move to. Let's fast forward. So it was about 18 years later, you were working on research on Washington Phillips. Yeah, I started uh, working on him in 2002. And that was for the um, the Texas Statesman? The Austin American Statesman. Oh, right, right. Yeah, what happened was I got a I got the uh, uh, the Yazoo uh, CD, and it had in the in the liner notes it said that he had died in Austin. Yeah, I loved his music already, and but when you work for the Austin American Statesman, you can't really write a big story about a guy from East Texas. It has to be an Austin connection. So when I saw that he died in Austin, that was what I needed to start working on the story. And it turned and out he, about a week. Oh, yeah. I'm Tur- sorry. Sorry, yeah. So it turned out he didn't die in Austin. That's one thing. Right, right. I spent about a week uh, uh, researching the wrong guy. And I had a lot of good information. I uh, found out, you know, uh, that he went crazy in, in East Texas. And uh, he was committed by his brother. And it was kind of a family dispute over the over the land and that sort of thing. But then I kept, uh, I was interviewing people from, from uh, Teague and Simsboro. And... Uh, they would tell me about Washington Phillips, and I said, no. No, uh, they would say, you mean my cousin, Washington Phillips, not my, you mean my other cousin. He's the one that played music. And I said, no, the one that's married to Electra. And they go, no, that's, he didn't play music. My other cousin did. And I was like thinking, well, maybe they're confused. But it turns out that the same name, uh, George Washington Phillips, there's two cousins by the same name. And uh, the guy who did the, the liner notes for the first Washington Phillips thing was a guy from Europe. He didn't really have the... Uh, access that I did. And so I just drove up to uh, to Teague, Texas and started interviewing people. And after about three or four trips, I kind of put everything together that it was a different Washington Phillips, that the one that played the music was, uh, I think he was 11 years older than the one who died in Austin. And uh, I just kept on the trail. Every time I find something new um, and kind of pieced everything together, I also found out that he didn't play Dulciolo. Right. Which is the other big myth about him. Yeah, that's the other and big mystery you cause, solved. Yeah, because I, I interviewed this one guy, Virgil Keaton. Uh-huh. And uh, he, he said, well, yeah, Washington Phillips played at our, our wedding. And I said, what year did you get married? He said, 1943. And I go, well, he died in 1938. He wow. could have played your wedding. And they go, no, he played the wedding. And then I, so I drove up there and talked to Virgil. And I said, well, what what did it look like when he played? And he, he did the plucking. He showed me the plucking thing motion. Right. And I said it wasn't a keyboard. He said it wasn't a keyboard. Said, no, it was like a it was like the strings from a piano and he strummed them. And I talked to three or four other people, they said the same thing that he played like a like a guitar. You know, but a weird guitar. It's what he made himself. Right. And so uh that's the thing about uh music history a lot of times is that someone will say one thing and it gets passed on as fact. Right. It's and like people just believe sure. it after after twenty people say it they figure it must be that must be a fact, you know? Like I did another, uh, another one of my subjects said it was Arizona Drains.
the piano player from the 1920s. You know, say my 1920s black gospel musicians is kind of my area of expertise. Sure. And uh, so they said that she was half Mexican because she went by Arizona Juanita Drains. Juanita was her middle name. But that was the only proof that anybody had that she was half Mexican. And you see every history that was written about her was that she was half Mexican. And Juanita was a very popular name for black females. Right. You know, and, and in fact, the church, the church mother of the church she was in in, in Fort Worth was named Juanita. And, you know, uh, in Texas, there's a thing where they use the first two initials, first initial and middle initial. And so she didn't have a middle name, so she took the Juanita so she could be A.J. Drains. And that's what it was. That's the whole thing. And then everybody just repeated this misinformation. And I don't know. I think that that's kind of like a lot a, of times. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that reminds me kind of like of uh, L.V. Thomas. Everybody thought her name was spelled L.V., like E-L-V-I-E, but it was actually the initials yeah. L.V. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like that. All Everything I've worked on is like that. You know, I did, I did a lot of research on Blaine Willie Johnson, too. Mm-hmm. And they had they had the wrong the wrong birth date the wrong birth year or death year I mean uh, the wrong place of birth and see this was all uh, his his wife at the time when he died she was the informant on the death certificate and she was given information about her own life she probably got confused and they she thought they were asking where she was from and she told them where I mean they were asking where he was from and she said where he, where she was from and so it's just like that all the time. Uh, you have to really uh, check with four or five sources on each fact and get a consensus because they're kind of all over the place. Right. Yeah. So how did you come to be such a historian on Texas music? Well, I started off, uh, you know, being a, a, a music critic, a rock critic. And really, you know, my, my idols were Lester Bangs and uh, the Cree Magazine people, you know. Right. Uh, and I was really more about a cervic rock critic because I didn't really know anything. You know, I, I wanted my my goal has always been the same, which is to be interesting. But when I was younger, I didn't know anything, so my way to be interesting was to be provocative, to be kind of a jerk. Yeah, be a pr- you know, just kind of like yeah, just you know, be getting people's faces. My whole I love the idea that you can't be proven wrong. Your opinion can't be proven wrong. Sure. So I would have these really. Dumb opinions. I would just, I would be out there. A lot of times, I didn't even believe them. I would just kind of come off the, off the wall. And I remember one thing I wrote. <clears throat> it was about Charlie Parker, and I knew, I knew what, what I was saying was wrong, but I still thought it was funny. <laughs> I said, I don't know about this guy. It sounds to me like he's just making this stuff up as he goes along. <laughs> and I put that, I put that in the review. And of course, I got all these people, you know, writing, "What this guy doesn't know anything about." And to me, it was all. It was all fine. I didn't care that people thought I was an idiot. It, to me, it was entertaining. Right. Yeah. But then about nineteen, about nineteen ninety six, the turning point for me was I did a story uh, from the uh, there was a guy named Kirk Franklin, gospel performer in Fort Worth, kind of a big star, not a big talent, but a big star. And he did a he had a number one record with this uh, a community choir in Dallas called God's Property. Yeah, I remember Stomp. that. Yeah, they sampled uh, One Nation Under a Groove, and they had a big hit, and had a, they had a rap break. <clears throat> and so I drove to Dallas and did the story on them, but I wanted more background on gospel music. At that point, I knew I loved gospel music, but I didn't know anything about it. So I got a couple of gospel history books, 
And that's when I first heard about Arizona Drains and Blind Willie Johnson and Washington Phillips. I heard about them. I knew that they were important people. They were from Texas. And why wasn't why was the Arizona Drains more prominent? Because you know they said that she invented the gospel beat. And that's, to me, the gospel beat, that's rock and roll. Right. So she's really the first person that ever played secular music with uh, religious lyrics. Oh, and why wasn't and she... Why wasn't she Texas Graves? Why wasn't she what? Why wasn't her first name Texas? Why was it Arizona? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah that's just, a, just a, way, a naming thing. Yeah. Uh, they called her Arizona. You know, Arizona, like, uh, with a... The rhyme with macaroni. Oh yeah. Oh nice. So it's just a it's just a thing. And you know, the other thing too is that uh, even though her name is Drains, is written as Drains, her real name is probably Duran, D O R A N. Mm. And her her parents were illiterate, so when they you know the way you pronounce Duran is Drain. Right. In the in the black dialect. So right. she's probably a Duran because she went to live with a woman named L V Duran in Wichita Falls. And so you can't prove that, though. Uh, there's a lot of things that you that you just have to go with your hunch on. Uh, a lot of things can't be proven. I mean, even stuff with, like, Bly Willie Johnson. Uh, you don't know if there's... There could have been another guy named Willie Johnson who was blind who was a musician. You know, there could have been three or four running around. Right. Sure. Because there's evidence There's evidence that he's been married, like, Bly Willie Johnson's been married, like, five or six times, you know? Right. And often with two, two or three women at the same time, but you never know. Also, it could be a guy, maybe it's a blind guy who's talented with a guitar. He calls himself Blind Willie Johnson because he wants everybody to think he's the, the famous one. Right. So, mm-hmm. that's, you know, there's, there's always a chance that you could be wrong about something, which is why I really uh, stick to the research so heavily because I, I don't want to be wrong. Right. Know? I want to be as accurate as possible. And they had a New York Times recently, uh, not that recently, but there's a guy named. Uh, uh, John Jeremiah Sullivan, right? Who wrote this really great piece on LV, uh, LV Thomas and, and Mac McCormick, and, and it was Gishi the anniversary Wiley, of yeah. the, uh, yeah, Yishi Wiley, and it was a uh, uh, that Voyager uh, that went off in 1977. It was mm-hmm. the anniversary of the Voyager, which has Blind Willie Johnson's music on it. Yeah, and so the New York Times, New York Times sent him to Temple. Uh, to do a big Blind Willie Johnson story, and I was I was a little worried, like, oh man, he's going to get something I didn't have. You know, he's going to find all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Guy's a great writer. He's got all this time. He's got the New York Times resources behind him. Yep. He ended up going back and, and not writing the story because there was nothing left. You know, right? Sure. Like the way I want it, the way I want it to be is like, if you come to Texas and you do research, I'm one of the people I've done research for. It's like going to a garage sale at noon. You know, it's already been picked over. Yep. You're not going to find anything good. And so, but in that case, I was a little bit worried, but I had that sort of uh, obsession that on those three artists, I know we were supposed to talk about, you know, mainly about Washington Fields, but no. they all kind of three go together. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it, it's sort of like, I figure that I did the primary research on all three of them. I was the first one that did, really did anything uh, that was real factual on all of them. So I had this responsibility to see it through. Yeah. You know, to me, they're sort of like, I don't want anybody to find out anything that I didn't like. If, that just shows that I didn't do my job all the way. Right. So you, you did the research for the publication back in 2002 and then mm-hmm. dust to digital comes along and, uh, yeah, they talk you into writing a book or did you already have, um, some of this already happening? Did you just expand yeah. on your old so, research, or what happened was uh, the the very first uh, product that Dustin Digital put out was 
called uh, I can't remember the name now. It's a big, it was a big uh, Babylon uh, had Babylon in the title. I can't remember. I'm, I'm bad with names at this point in, in titles. But oh, their very first uh, release was great. It was in a wooden box. Yeah, it was a six yeah. CD I, set. Um, God, I know exactly what you're talking about. My friend John used to have. Yeah, it. Um, yeah, it's a great. Well, they compilation. had. Uh, but they had Washington Phillips in that, and they they uh, referred to my research in their little blurb on Washington Phillips. And so, about 2013, uh, Lance Ledbetter from Dustin Digital he gets a hold of me. He says, "If you want to write the liner notes for this Washington Phillips thing we want to do, uh, we want to have like real extensive liner notes." And uh, I said, "Sure." And he, he said, "Well, how much do you want?" And I, I quoted him a really small amount because. I thought I would just take what I had already written and just send it to them, and they put it in a book, and that's it. I wouldn't have to do any, any new stuff, you know. Right. Uh, of course, it doesn't work out that way. You get, you know, um, sometimes obsession is the talent, you know. And right. I think in this case, I had a, I had one more chance to do Washington Phillips, and I ended up spending like way too much time on it, and uh, I wrote it in uh, 2014. And it didn't come out for two years. I sent it in. I had to wait around for two years. But yeah. I knew it was, I knew it was really good. I knew I had a lot of stuff that nobody ever had before. Nice. And it was a 77-page booklet. And before that, there was maybe one page of stuff that people knew about Washington Phillips. Right. No, but it was... I'll, uh, it, I'll, I'll tell you one story that's kind of interesting. Yeah, I wanted to hear <laughs> like that. I, I went to... Uh, well, there was a guy named Wardell Phillips. He's a Mexican for Washington Phillips. He owns the farm that Washington Phillips uh, lived at. His father was Washington Phillips' best friend, and he sort of inherited the farm. And so I went there. I was going to interview Wardell Phillips, and he also had the family history all written down. And so I drive to Teague, about two and a half hours, and I go to his house, and he goes, well, I talked to my, uh, I think it was his, his nephew, and his nephew talked to a, a lawyer, and they said I shouldn't do the interview because, you know, I, why would I do that? I'm not getting any money for this. And we just don't want to do the interview. And I said, well, you know, and I'm trying to get him to, I said, well, I just drove all the way out here. He goes, I'm sorry, I, I, I can't do the interview. And so I drove back to Austin, empty-handed, and I got a speeding ticket, a $180 <laughs> ticket. Oh, my gosh. I thought, oh, God, what the hell? So I said, well, something, I got to get something good out of this day. And so there's a library in Austin called the Texas State Library. And I said, I'm going to go there, and I'm going to find something about Washington Phillips because I don't want this whole day to be a washout, you know. And that's where that's the day I found that clipping from 1907 that is really the most important uh, bit of information on Washington Phillips. Yeah, we're going to talk about his manzarine. This is, this is 20 years, 1907, yeah. This is 20 years, this is 20 years before, oh, shoot, I got a call coming, hold on. Okay, okay. I'm going to read that uh, little bit of paper while you do that. Okay. Okay. This comes from the Teague Chronicle from November 8th, 1907. Washington Phillips would have been 27 at the time. And I'm going to uh, do a slight paraphrase of the article. A unique instrument. There is a gentleman in town named George Washington Phillips who has manufactured one of the most unique musical instruments we ever saw. It is a box about two by three feet six inches deep, in which he has strung violin strings, something on the order of an auto harp. He is as black as the ace of spades, but the music he gets out of that roughly made box is certainly surprising. He uses both hands and plays all sorts of airs. He calls it a manzarine. 
the tricks which nature plays are stranger than fiction. It just proved that Dulciola, it, it had, it showed that 20 years before Washington Phillips ever walked, to, ever stepped into a studio, he was already written, re, being written about in his hometown newspaper. So he already had the talent, you know. Right. And so uh, everybody thought he was, everybody thought that when he went to the studio for the first time, he was like 34, 35. He was actually 47. And right. he'd been good for at least 25 years. Yeah. So he was like, uh, you know, you can imagine all that incredible music by Washington Phillips was one guy with a microphone holding those two zithers, you know, Frankenstein together and one take. Yeah. Everything he did was one take. Yep. Yeah, only and, in it's December. Amazing, it's amazing. It, it, one, one microphone, you know, it's just amazing he was able to do that. And I always think that uh, the guy, Frank B. Walker, the guy who recorded him, mm-hmm. He recorded. He recorded Washington Phillips one day, Lang Willie Johnson the next day. Incredible. He must have thought, "What the heck is going on here?" In yeah. Texas, you know. Yeah. Like that's. Uh, because that's... those those are two unbelievable. Those are two unbelievable talents, and they just they did it all with one microphone. Imagine what was going through his head that weekend, you know, like, uh, boy, yeah, that's... he is the guy. But Frank Frank Walker is the guy who discovered Bessie Smith, though. So right. he had been around greatness, and he also discovered uh, Hank Williams later on. Right, right. But he's a major, he's a major talent. I, I really, I love when I find out about people like Frankie Walker that should be better known that aren't. You know, like everybody knows about Ralph Peer, and there's been books written about him. But Frankie Walker, to me. It's just as great as Ralph Peer, just as important in the whole music field. Yeah, he, he, he did. He, he recorded Body and Soul by Coleman Hawkins, uh, Take the A Train by Duke Ellington. Right. Just an incredible guy, but because he didn't really, uh, you know, court the limelight, and also his all his papers were, were uh, destroyed through, through, who knows why, but he doesn't have any papers to, to go through. So that's why nobody really uh, knew anything about him. But I just thought what he did in Dallas, those, those three sessions in December, was pretty pretty amazing stuff. Yeah, December of 27, 28, and 29. And, yeah. Uh, All in Deep Ellum, yeah. Yeah, and they did it in December, too, because it's so hot in Texas that... Uh, they recorded right onto the right into the uh, album, the lacquer, you know. Right, that and makes it would, sense. It would melt. It, it would melt during the during the summer. That that's like, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. I, um, wow. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and you know what he would do is he he'd audition in the morning, they rehearse in the afternoon, and they record at night. And so, of the uh, I don't know twenty or so acts that he recorded in Dallas, probably sixty or seventy tried out for it. You know, and uh, so it's he. There was a lot of uh, people that 
you know, really wanted to make a record because to them, that was the greatest thing that could happen in their life is to make a record. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned, um, you know, like payment was almost kind of secondary, you know, it was like more important just to be yeah, recorded. Yeah. Yeah, they never got any money. And it's, it's a shame, too, because Blind Willie Johnson's family still hasn't received a penny. Really? Wow. And when you think about, yeah, the first day, the first day that he ever stepped into a studio, he recorded five songs that are classics now. Yeah. Nobody's Fault But, Nobody's Fault but Mine that Led Zeppelin did. Mm-hmm. Uh, Samson and Delilah, yep. Grateful Dead did. He called it, uh, If I Had My Way, uh, Jesus, Jesus Make My Dying Day, which mm-hmm. Bob Dylan called In My Time of Dying. Yeah. Also recorded by Led Zeppelin. Um, um, Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground. Which is on the Voyager you know, record. Using, yeah. And it's also like uh, Paris, Texas, right? Right, Cooter, you know, based his whole soundtrack to Paris, Texas on that one song. So this is all in one day and never, they haven't received a penny. Wow. Because they took, the thing is, though, you, do, you know, the record labels, are, they're not going to look for you and say, hey, are you related to Blind Willie Johnson? Here's a check for $114,000. Right. right. You have to, you have to make an estate. You have to establish the estate. You have to go do the due diligence and find out all the uh, uh, relatives, all the ancestors. And with Blind Willie Johnson, they just never could do that. I mean, who knows how many kids he's got? Right. It was too hard to find that stuff. Yeah. And I, I did interview. I interviewed his daughter, that proven daughter, who's uh, on on her birth certificate said the father was uh, Willie Johnson, a musician from Temple, Texas. Oh wow! So that was definitely that's his daughter. That's very specific. Her, was, that's good. Yeah, I interviewed her in 2003, and she was living in a house, the same house that she was conceived in, 817 Hunter Street in Marlin, Texas. The roof was the roof was caved in. There was only one room that they could actually sit in, without without worry of the of the roof falling in on them. Oh man, it was the worst shack, worst shack you'd ever seen. She was a 72 year old woman with her her ankles were so swollen, and she was trying to work out with Steve Levesque. Uh, it sounds like Steve Levesque, uh, the guy who uh, was Robert Johnson's um, state guy. He got mm. all the uh, money for Robert Johnson's family. And so his deal was 50-50. So he got 50% of whatever money he collected. And she was going to sign with him. He he flew to Marlin, went and visited with her, and same thing, she decided not to. And that cost her a lot of money because, uh, say with Robert Johnson, I think at the time, he had collected about twenty million dollars. Wow! Oh so the family gosh. got the family got ten million dollars for Robert Johnson's money, and uh, you know, so even though he got ten million too, you can't think like that. You have to think. I need to get something for my family. Right. Yeah. But she passed away before anything, anything could really happen, which is sad. Yeah, sure is. Uh, I was wondering if you could recount the story of uh, when you uh, found out that Washington Phillips was a snuff user and uh, how you how you found that out well i i tracked down this woman uh named annie fluellen annie fluellen and and uh she was related uh to both washington phillips the one who died in austin and the one who was a musician and uh she was telling me i talked to her on the phone she was in california and she had this funny story about how when she was a little girl she kept wanting she kept bugging Washington Phillips about his snuff. You know, let me try that, let me try that. And so he gave her a little uh, pinch of it just to show her how, you know, uh, dangerous it was or whatever. And so she said, 
she she took a little in her nose a little bit of, and she said she passed out cold from the snuff. <laughs> so I thought stuff. the whole time she's talking she's talking about the other one. She I, I said she's gotta be talking about the other one, not the Bible thumper. But then when I went to uh when I was working on the story, I was very lucky to meet this guy named Durden Dixon. And Durden Dixon had uh he lived next door to Washington Phillips in Simsboro. And then since then though he moved to a, a trailer uh kind of on the on the outskirts of town, and I just was, I just went and started knocking on doors, you know, in, sure. in the black uh, black neighborhood. And he was there. He goes, oh yeah, I knew I knew Mr. Wash. I knew Mr. Wash. So I said, "Can you show me where his uh, his farm used to be?" Sure. So he gets in the car, and we're driving there, and I'm playing Washington Phillips CD in the car. It is the eyes light up, like, "Oh my God, that's him!" Wow. He, nobody there had any idea. Nobody knew that he made records. And even the people next door, none of the people in Simsboro knew he made records. So yeah. we go to the, where the, he shows me where, the, where his house used to be. He had a little cabin there. He said, yeah, this is where it used to be. And I'm looking around, there's all these like rusted buckets and, you know, kind of a bed spring and kind of trash here and there. And I looked and there's like half buried. There's like a little glass thing, a little glass bottle. And I pick it up and I emptied the dirt from it. And then Durden says, that's a snuff bottle, man. I go, what? He goes, yeah, that's a snuff bottle. And so <laughs> I'm still thinking, like, I don't know if this is for real. So I took it to an antique store the next day in Austin, and they said, yeah, it, that was a Garrett snuff bottle from 1950s, early 50s. Wow. And so Washington Phil died in 54, so that was his snuff bottle. Wow. Do you, still, found. do you still have the snuff bottle? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Here's, a, here's something funny, too. Uh, well, not that funny, but uh, the guy, Josh Pearson, from uh, Lift to Experience, I know about from, them. Uh, Denton, yeah. Texas. yeah, yeah, they're great. So he came to my he came to my book signing, and I, I did a book signing in T after the after the book came out, and uh, it was really it was a really magical book signing. All the uh, Lance wanted me to uh, record some of the people that were uh, relatives of or not relatives neighbors of Washington Phillips and get their memories and that sort of thing. And so I went around with a with an iPhone and got some people to tell stories. And <clears throat> and Josh Pearson, he came up from uh, Mahia, which is not too far, maybe an hour away. He came to the book signing, <clears throat> and his friend Justin Joseph. And afterwards, we, I said, I'll, I'll show you the farm where Washington used to live. And Durden Dixon took us over there again because I forgot where it was. And we're looking around and stuff. And Josh Pearson found a snuff bottle too. Wow. Same same kind. He found a brown brown snuff bottle. So wow. must have fallen not off one, the cart. Not one of a kind. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it must have been. I don't know. We were. He was looking around, and uh, we found his well too. And uh, I don't know. We, it seems like every time I went there, there would be something else I'd find that would be really cool. I wonder if that's you know. There's not much besides the recordings that survive from Washington Phillips. I wonder you know, like what happened to the Manzarine? You've got the snuff bottles at least, though you know. Yeah, we got the snuff bottles, and also the church where he was a uh, preacher. Like when when he when he first started off, he was a jackleg preacher, which meant he wasn't ordained, and he would go to whatever church would have him, and he would spend all his time on his little mule cart going around every Sunday, going to every church waiting to preach, which is really why a lot of his songs were kind of about how preachers, uh, the ordained preachers, were really not holy man; they were kind of uh, phonies. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. He had a lot of songs like that because. He was a. He thought he was a religious guy. He had the real uh, spirit inside him, and these other people just went to college and they thought they were cool, but they really weren't. They're educated and fools. So, 
Yeah, that's right. But, he, but at the very end, though, he became a reverend at this church called the uh, uh, Trinity Mission. Uh, wait, what's it called? Missionary Baptist Church. I can't remember his first. Trinity Missionary Baptist Church. Maybe that's what it was. Yeah, and no, he, Pleasant Pleasant Hill. Anyway, so I I went there and I saw the I was there when the preacher was there and I I said, well, do you have any old do you have any old uh, any old stuff here, whatever from the old days? And he goes back and brings out this box. It had all these like prayer books and hymnals, and they had Washington Phillips' signature on there, and he also had all these uh, uh, notations about what he sang at the uh, at the services, and like he married his Washington Phillips' third wife was the uh, the choir director from the church, and so I, there was some remnants of that too. And then I found I found the picture that is kind of famous now, but the picture of him with the two mules. Yeah, that was from a. That was a woman named Doris Foreman Neely, and I, uh, as I said, I was you know knocking on doors, that sort of thing, and people told me you need to talk to Doris uh, Foreman Neely. She lived next door to, or her family lived next door to Wash Phillips, and I went over there and talked to her for a while, and she goes, "Well, hold on a second. and she goes, "Yeah, I got a picture of him," and I'm like, kind of helpful, but not thinking anything's going to happen. And she shows me that picture, and I'm like, "Oh my God!" Yeah. That, you, you know, there's only there's only been one picture of him before that, right? Yeah. And it's much and, uh, later too. So, it's he's 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 a bit older. Yeah, that picture was like early fifties. Yeah, that picture was early fifties, and a lot, a lot of people at first didn't think it was the same person, but then uh, someone did an analysis uh, where they did they checked the uh, bone structure and said it definitely was. Uh, oh wow, the right one. Wow. I mean, there's a guy. Uh, there's a uh, guy named Gary Harrison and uh, Michael. Somebody, I can't remember his name right now, um, but they did a lot of research on the instrumentation of Washington Phillips, and there's some really good stuff online that goes into goes into really strong detail about exactly exactly what he played, and uh, it's called I think it's called FretlessZithers.com. It's the name of the yeah. website. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I've I've, I've heard <clears throat> that before. Uh, doing a little but bit that, of research. Yeah, they sort of like I'm not a musician. And I'm not a musician, so I don't really I didn't know a lot of the terms. So it's good that musicians came up and did that because you know when I when I first started doing the story, there was only 40 known uh, Dulciola owners in the whole world. Right. So and, and they he, were all they were all into the they were all into the idea that Washington Phillips played the Dulciola. But anyway, a guy from Memphis named Andy Cohen said, if it went to Washington Phillips, nobody even care about the Dulciola. He's the only reason anybody cares. That's exactly what I was going to say. So, yeah. Yeah, and so. And it was weird too because I called Andy Cohen when I first found out that it was a it was a zither, not a dulciola he played, and he didn't. And he owns a dulciola. He, he was actually kind of interested. He wasn't like going, "Oh, that's bullshit" or anything like that. He was like, he was going, "Wow, that's great!" You know, he was really encouraging. And uh, so that's kind of that's kind of cool. It's interesting too because I, you know, uh, listening to his music, you can hear, you know, as a musician, that he's plucking, he's not hammering the strings. So it's interesting right. that myth, right. like, you know, was the well, bat for so long. It, it all started with uh, Paul Oliver. He had a book called uh, Screaming the Blues, I think, or Screaming the Blues, something like that. And on the notes uh, from uh, one of the sessions, it said he played a, a, a dulciola, like D-U-L- uh, do you see like dolce Which, like think, sweet like a dulcimer oh, like i think i think they were trying to say dul uh uh what do you call it dulcimer yeah like a dulcimer yeah dulcimer is a 
Dulcimer's a, a it's written plus. Mm-hmm. But they, uh, Paul Albert thought they meant Dulciola, so he he kind of started that whole idea. That that's what it was. And then the guy that uh, the guy from the Netherlands who read all this really scholarly uh, reporting on Washington Phillips, he he came and ran with the Dulciola thing, and it became fact after that. But in Rykuder, uh, Rykuder when he made uh, I think it was Paris, Texas uh, album. He used the Dulciola to try to recreate the Washington Phillips sound. And uh, it does sound like, I mean, the Dulciola is really, it's a zither, but it's keyboard activated. They do sound similar. Right. But like you said, you don't hear the plucking sound, though, with the Dulciola. You hear a hammering sound. Yeah, and it seems like you can't be, um, like, he's, Washington Phillips is very virtuosic on those those strings. You know, he's doing these arpeggios and Oh, yeah. Uh, real he spent a lot of time working on that. Yeah, it seems like he'd have... Oh, yeah. It, it, would, be, it would be difficult to recreate that with, with the, the keys, maybe. I don't know, but I've never played a dulciola, but... Um, yeah, he had his own. He had his own tuning. He put these two. Uh, he put these two zithers together, and uh, we're not sure if he even had a box. A lot of the people I talked to said it was it was uh, in a box. And so he might have he might have had like a little uh, something that he kept the zithers in to have a more resonating sound. Right. And then when yeah. he did the, the the picture of him, he's holding up the zithers. Might maybe he was just out. showing him what he what he yeah he might have taken him out, but. Or he might he have definitely made, didn't play a dulciola though. I mean, he had like 20 years or something, so he might have also been doing different iterations of his Manzarine, you know? Sure, he could have evolved it. I wonder yeah. if he made yeah. more than one. Well, I think he made the, I think he made his first one. I think he made them out of uh, piano wires. And then later on, he found out that there was an instrument that's already made called a zither. And he got he got a couple of those. I think I think early on, though, just like the way that a lot of uh, blues musicians, they start off playing the... Uh, a, a wire from a screen door, sure. And then they end up getting getting a guitar. I think early on he made his he made his instrument early on, and then uh, later on he, he got a you know a real zither. Because I think the the uh, fretlesszithers dot com they they actually know exactly what he played. Yeah, the exact. So what's the phone yeah. was one of them. Yeah, and, but you know the Frank. Frank uh, B. Walker, though he said that uh, that Washington made an instrument, played an instrument he made himself. So I think it could have been that he just the way he put those two zithers together was uh, really unique. Right. Nobody yeah. ever seen anything like that before. Yeah, or since, really. Yeah, and there, there was a lot of there was some things I left out of the of the book that was interesting. I might have put it. I'm not sure, but oh, an exclusive. He had, he had all sorts of tricks. Washington had all sorts of tricks and. All the kids thought he was like the boogeyman <laughs> because what he would do is he need a he need a fish. He cook a fish oh, and he right. eat like a sandwich, he, and yeah. then he spit the bones out of the side of his mouth. Yeah, I was wondering. He had all these little tricks. He had all these little tricks for the kids, and he was a very very beloved guy in the in the community. But everybody thought he was really weird. So yeah. He sold uh, liniment oil and that sort of thing. Hey y'all, Mark Lee here, just button in and post. So speaking of Washington Phillips being a weird guy, um, 
there's a story firsthand that Michael sent me a recording of graciously. So this is a low-profile exclusive of a woman named Mary Ford, who was a little girl who lived in the same neighborhood as Wash Phillips uh, toward the end of his life. And she shared some anecdotes about it. Um, And just so you know, female mules are called Jennies. All right, here we go. I know that whole round world do not love me no how. And it is on the count of sin. Until Michael started writing, none of us had any idea that records was cut or anything. We knew he made this instrument. And because of our lack of knowledge, we called it a guitar because it had strings and a box. One thing we knew about him, he was not a handsome person, and we kids were sniggle. But we loved him because he was a gentle person. And as the lady said a while ago, he could take those jennies, and wherever he had it, he did not have to guide them. He would play that music, and them Jennings would take him wherever he wanted to go. <laughs> and we kids would run behind him, and he never looked back, but he'd tell y'all, y'all behave. We respected him. My connection with him is I love those Jennings, and I played with them. He would come to the 19th of June at that time where we colored folks would meet at Pleasant Hill, have ice cream, and he would play. And as you said, we would dance around and jump around with Mr. Watson's music. And I'd go back and play with his genius. And he'd tell me, when he died, I could have his genius. <laughs> and when I heard he died, I took out across the field, I was going to get my genius. <laughs> and I cried for three days. Because Miss Dupree sold my genius. <laughs> I asked my dad to go find Mr. Washington's genius because them genius was mine. <laughs> and we never knew what happened to him. But for your information, in our community, we had no idea that he had cut records. All we knew was he played and that he was a praying man. I tell this and I said that my daddy said he went to Lubbock, Texas. And being colored, he would walk in the street and two police officers decided to arrest him for what you call a vagrancy. They said one got on one side, one got on the other side. Mr. Watch fell on his knees and went to praying. And when he opened his eyes, they were gone. (laughs) 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 So that let you know he had a spirit connection. His music ability came, whether you want to admit or not, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit that taught him how to play and gave him that gift of music. But in Silver, we loved him as Mr. Wash. We didn't know about no Wash Phillips or, or no musician. He was just Mr. Wash that drove the genus. And we kids played with him and thought he was a booger man. Then you will rightly treat your neighbor and in one be hard for you to do
Um, and I just think yeah, it's so cool. remarkable that you, you got to meet some people that knew him uh, for yeah. for this release event. And so many of them had never even heard the recordings or or much less them, knew about them. them. Yeah, when I started, nobody had ever, ever heard of it, you know? Because he, he made the recordings in 1927, they were all born in the 40s and 50s. Yeah. They knew him as, they knew him as kids, maybe as teenagers, but they didn't know him as a you know, recording artist, and he didn't go around telling everybody, hey, I made, I made a few records. He was not a 20s. braggart. And, and you know, those records were probably hard to come by. I mean, you know, they only made yeah. th- a few thousand copies, it seems like, or maybe 10,000, something like that, you know? Yeah, at the most, he he was uh, his first record sold the best because he had this really unique sound. And also, too, like 1929 when the when the depression hit, the stock market crashed. That ended pretty much ended country blues gospel. The primitive recording industry was over at that point. Right, right. Like a lot in, of artists in the thirties. Well, what happened was, uh, you know, radio started and commercial radio started in 1920 in Pittsburgh and. It sort of slowly grew, and then when the depression hit, then all of a sudden radio was the thing, and because you you couldn't afford records, right? And so people listened to the radio, and radio was all about uh, pop music. It was all about maybe you know jazz, a little bit of jazz, but they weren't mm-hmm. into. It was more escapism uh, stuff, and sure. so all the real the real stuff was not you know was not popular at all. And then, you know, Robert Johnson comes along in 1936, around the time that the Depression's winding up, and that became the, 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 it kind of started all over again. Right. It's interesting how, you know, in good times, people seem to uh, be more amenable to, like, um, you know, maybe more raw or real type of subject matter. But as soon as, you know, things turn south, they want, you know, they want escapism, you know? They want everything sugar-coated. Yeah. Which... Right. I, I feel right. like that's that's about where the radio's at these days as well. As of late, yeah, who listens to the radio anymore? Though, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah it's, but it's it's like I, I did. I have a new book coming out uh, called Ghost Notes. It's coming out next month. Great title. Yeah. I have a I have, I have a few chapters on uh, the, the Lomax family, John Lomax and yeah. uh, Alan Lomax. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, was, for our listeners, a, those were early uh, field recorders, uh, mm-hmm. ethnomusicologists who... Yeah. I mean, really, John John Lomax is kind of like the father of American musicology. Right. Uh, you know, he found in 1910, he, he, he found Home on the Range, you know, Streets of Laredo. Oh, wow. Uh, Get Long Little Dogies, the Chisholm Trail. Oh, yeah. This is all... In, in 1910, he was the first one to have all these cowboy songs published. But he didn't really become all that prominent until the 30s when he was in the 60s. He was 65 years old when he started again. And his son was 19. And his son, Alan, really took over. But their big fear, the reason they went to penitentiaries to record, like Lead Belly mm-hmm. and people like that, is because uh, prisoners did not have access to the radio. And they didn't have access to records. They didn't know about jazz. He wanted to go to where people still were singing folk songs as a way to entertain themselves. Because the rest of the country was crazy about the radio. Right. Yeah. So you have your first, like, sort of, um, you know, homogenization or, or monoculture of music, you know. Yeah. Um, he was trying to get right. back to the source of, you know, uh, American yeah. music tradition. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you think about all the, all the songs he, he had saved, like you know, House of the Rising Sun, 
uh, Stoop John B, Frankie and Johnny. You know, a lot of these songs might have been lost forever. It went for the Lomaxes. Right. Wow. They recorded them and uh, they recorded them and archived them at the Library of Congress. And the well, like for instance, uh, Good Night Irene. Uh, Led Belly played it for them when he was still a prisoner in I think 1933, mm-hmm. and uh, they archived the, the recording. With the uh, what's it? It's the Archive of American Folk Song, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. It was part of the Library of Congress. And then later on, like 13 years later, or 17 years later, the Weavers recorded Good Night Irene. And that's really what started the folk revival in America in 1950. It was the number one song. And to think that this song was sung by a prisoner on a 12 string guitar. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and then next thing you know, everybody in the whole country singing it. Yeah. So, it's Talk about being in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Well, those guys were, you know, they, that's getting back to the whole obsession thing. You know, the Lomaxes were totally obsessed with yeah. getting this material. They, they knew it was out there, and if they didn't get it, it might not, it might uh, fade away. It might be gone forever. So there, there's two Washington Phillips tracks that never got recorded, or, or they got recorded and they, uh, were never released or um, right there or they haven't been found yeah the world is in a bad fix everywhere how, how far two. I want to know how far your obsession took you uh, with that particular recording Did well you- I went to I went to New York City and I went to I went to Sony who claims that they own the Washington Phillips masters they don't have any masters I mean all these the Washington Phillips uh, records the Blind Willie Johnson, Arizona Dreams—they're all taken from '78. Yeah, and from there's collectors. No mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, from collectors. And so uh, they claim to own the material. Maybe they do, but Columbia's been sold three or four times since the recordings. And I don't think they—they—they they, they, uh, they didn't pay any money for them. Right. I don't know how they could claim copyrights, but anyway, uh, I figured out that the other song that was never released was—you uh, you can't. Uh, it was, they call it later Tadler. Oh, yeah, You Can't Stop a Tadler. Tadler. Yeah. You can't stop a Tadler And ain't no use in you trying Just as long as this world lasts They're gonna find somebody lying Oh, they deliver me from A woman or either man you know now it's all the go that will go about from house to house and tell everything that they know. Yeah, that's the tablet's the way that uh, Linda Ronson recorded. She called it Tadler, but this Washington Phillips has got a song on an album that sold like three million copies by Linda Ronstadt. Never received a penny. Yeah. But I think I, I, I figured out later on that those that Tadler and uh, The World's in a Bad Fix were never released because they weren't gospel songs. Wow. You know, Tadler's more of a moralistic, moralistic marriage, you know, song. Yeah. The World's in a Bad Fix is more of a commentary. Yeah. Back then, you did, you did gospel or you did secular. You didn't do both. Right. No crossovers. Yeah, and also too, like 19, 1929, uh, nobody cared about Washington Phillips in nineteen twenty nine. All that music, 
the only one of those three that I that I'm obsessed with that really was popular into the 30s was Blind Willie Johnson. Right. And he he sort of faded after 1930. Wow. So um, on on the songs you said that it's a comment. I've I've heard little bits, but um, yeah, has anybody found anything else about these like lyrics or? Um, yeah, I guess you no. know the the title is well, very suggestive, well, but well, I have the I I have copies of the card, the recording cards, which you put in the book so too for for our oh, listeners. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you should definitely buy this reissue of Washington Phillips's music. It's really great. It's full of yeah, full of ephemera. Oh. Besides the seventy-seven pages of liner notes, there's lots of photos and scanned documents and news clippings. It's just oh, such, the, such the a tremendous. The remaster is yeah. incredibly remastered by. Uh, uh, I can't remember the guy's name. Right now. I'm sorry, I'm so bad with names. But oh, that's fine. I'm 64 years old. You know, it's like the first thing that goes. You know. Yep. I go yep. to book signings. I go to book signings with people I've known for 30 years. I have to ask them what their name was. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's yeah. really embarrassing. It's the way it goes. I know? finally have. I finally have it worked out. So I have someone that I have someone that writes their name down uh, ahead of me. And they hand me the card, and then like, oh, Betsy, how are you doing? You know, but I couldn't tell you Betsy Davis. She came oh, up to me. I got it here. Michael Graves did the mastering. Yeah, Michael Graves. Yeah, from New Braunfels, Texas. He's it's been nominated for like four or five Grammys. He's he's one of the best. Yeah, it's. But I, you know, you listen, you listen to the uh, Dustin Digital uh, versions of those songs. It's so crisp. Yeah. Compared to the Yazoo. Yeah, and the the signal noise and uh, all the pops and and hisses <laughs> are like you know it's it's yeah the best yeah. the best versions of those songs out there bar none yeah. Well, the Arizona Drains one, the same thing. The Arizona Drains uh, recordings are so much better than the uh, document, <clears throat> the ones that came out on document. Because that's the guy. That's the guy's name is Chris King. Chris King did the Arizona Drains ones. He's really good too. But these guys, they uh, they know how to get the sound out. I don't know how they do it, but it's night and day. Yeah, it's some kind of uh, some kind of magic, you know. Yeah, I just did a I did a liner notes for the box set, uh, my Sam Cooke box set. Oh wow! That Abco Abco put out. It's called uh, uh, Sam Cooke to Complete Keen Years. It's mm-hmm. all his Keen stuff from 1957, 1960. And uh, while I was working on it, uh, I was listening to the songs and. You know they're they're okay and everything like that, but then the engineer uh, Terry Landy, she sent me the the final mixes that she had done, and oh my God, they just sound so great! Wow, I mean, really that's that's a really good set, you know, because the thing about Sam Cooke is that he his great stuff is great, but I think his bad stuff is even greater when he yeah. does songs that aren't the greatest songs. Oh, he yeah. can sing anything, that guy. Wow, and so are are there your liner notes for that? Um, Anywhere near the tome of the Manzarine Dreams book? No. Uh, well, the you know the Washington stuff was that's about fifteen years of research. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not not not, continu- not continuously. I mean, I I work on like maybe three months, then I take three or four years off, then I work on another month. You know, but the the Sam Cook uh, box set was done in about two and a half months, and I had the I had you know Peter Gorelnik you know hanging over my head the whole time. I was trying to think, like, how could I? What can I find that that he hasn't done already? Because right, he spent about ten years. He spent about ten years on his book on Sam Cooke. So you can't top that. So it's more, it's it's well written, but it's not as much research. Sure. The only thing I really did find, the only thing I found that 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 Garrow didn't have, was that that song, um, Old Man River. 
Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, by Oscar Hammersmith and uh, Hammerstein and uh, Rogers and Hammerstein. Jerome yeah. Kern. No. It's but Jerome Kern. Jerome Kern, I think, wrote the uh, music for that, and, and Hammerstein wrote the lyrics. But there's a uh, there's a part in uh, A Change Is Gonna Come. You know the posthumous uh, civil rights anthem that mm-hmm. Sam Cooke wrote. It came out in '64, and it says, uh, "I'm, I'm uh, tired of living, but I'm scared of dying." It's one of the lyrics, yeah. and that's that's right from that's right from Old Man River. Right. He took the lyrics right from that, oh, wow. and then you go back and you look. He's got uh, a change that's going to come. It's got a, a river motif. It's a, you know, it talks about the river running, mm-hmm. and I think that when he did Old Man River. A lot of that stuff was in, kind of stayed in the songwriting DNA and kind of got him. That song is a pretty amazing song. You, you can analyze sure Old Man River. It's just, it's, it's, I don't, I'm not, I can't tell you exactly what it's about, but it's, you can analyze it different ways. And uh, it's, you know, kind of like how life keeps going on, even though these people are going, horrible things are happening to these, these people and nobody cares, you know? Right. That's on the one side. But then the other side is, it's, it's kind of like a, the river really is, the people, you know, mm-hmm. that they will eventually uh, succumb. Not succumb, the other word, the, other, the opposite of that. But, uh, persevere. Yeah, persevere, rise, yeah. But that's, but that's really the only thing that I that I really uh, got that was original, whereas in the Washington Phillips thing, pretty much everything I got was original. I mean, they, they call it primary research when you aren't just uh, recapitulating what other people have found, you're actually finding new things yeah going out and finding snuff bottles yeah it, you know, a lot of people think I'm this great researcher because I found all this stuff but to tell you the truth the reason I was able to find all that stuff is because nobody really looked before yeah you know, nobody nobody cared even even Blind Willie Johnson how could you not he's like the greatest slide guitar player of all time yeah and he was nine years he recorded nine years before Robert Johnson and not, you know two years before Charlie Patton and nobody really cares about Blind Willie Johnson or didn't until recently Right, because he's yeah. a gospel singer. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. uh, gospel is really gets a uh, uh, collectors are not into gospel. They they care too much about the lyrics. Right, they care too much about oh, this is yeah. all about God. This is you know. Yeah, it makes but them blush, listen, maybe. <laughs> yeah, but I don't, I don't. I'm not like that. I don't. I don't listen to any lyrics. I don't. Listen, I don't listen to Bob Dylan lyrics. I don't uh, care about lyrics. I'm the same way. To me, the the strength of the strength to me is if you have a really good melody and a good singer and. Yep. All that stuff. The lyrics it elevates the lyrics. You can yeah. have uh, average lyrics, and you and the, the, when the presentation's so good that the lyrics sound great. Right. They have so much more meaning. Right. You know, I don't care. So anyway, I, that's how. I, that's one of the reasons why I think that I was drawn to gospel music is because I didn't care about the lyrics. I cared about the uh, the commitment of the musicians. And the other thing too is I uh, when I was working on the Blind Willie Johnson. I went and visited Mac McCormick. Yeah, the greatest. Uh, what I'm trying to do, he's the greatest ever. Yeah, yeah, he's an he, incredible he Mac, researcher. He's got so much stuff, you know, that nobody even knows about. He's got a picture. He's got a picture of Robert Johnson in a goddamn sailor suit. Wow. <laughs> you know, and and I, I've I've known people. I've known a guy who's seen the picture, and he never even put it out there. Like, if I found something like that, I put it on Facebook. Yeah. You know? Is but, he, but is he still working so on great. his book? Do you know uh, if he's working no, he on that? Oh, he died. Oh, that's right. He died. He died in uh, 2015. Right. Oh, wow. But I visited. I visited Mac McCormick, and he's a really weird guy. Uh, and first we had, yeah, he was going to throw me out. I thought because I mentioned somebody. I mentioned a, uh, a another researcher that I thought he would be impressed by that I knew him. 
and he hated the guy. Oh wow, bad blood. Why'd you mention why'd you mention him? Oh shit, I screwed up on that one. Anyway, he finally calmed down. Finally calmed down, had a couple drinks, you know. And uh he was telling me about uh Blind Willie Johnson. He says, You know, I don't I don't know anything about gospel music, but to me Blind Willie Johnson's more of a blues guy than a gospel guy. And then I told him about the my research I did on uh, Arizona Drains that she was really the the first Pentecostal uh, recording artist. And he says, "Well, what makes it what makes a singer what makes a Pentecostal singer different than say a Baptist singer?" At that point, I thought, "Well, this guy doesn't know anything about gospel music. He's saying that." You know? Yeah. And so when I drove back to Austin, I thought, "Well, that's what I'm going to be a gospel historian because Matt McCormick has already uncovered everything there is to uncover with the blues." Right. Everybody has it. Yeah. And nobody's really looked. Nobody looks in the gospel music. But you know, and also to to me, it's always been my favorite kind of music. Well, I say the last twenty five years. Uh, you know, I used to when I used to party a lot. You know, I'd smoke weed, get drunk every night, and I'd, the next morning I'd wake up and I'd see what was on the turntable. What did I play the last thing the night before? And it used to be like ACDC or uh, <laughs> uh, Black Sabbath or sure. Metallica or something like that. And later on, it would be like you know the Soulsters, you know, or the Swan Silvertones. Right. Yeah. And the antithesis. Like, kind of like, where do you go after? What's what's heavier than ACDC? It's gospel music. Yeah, it sure is. Gospel music is so much so much heavier than ACDC. And it's so, true. Yeah, like I kind of like I, so I, I already had that. I already had that get to me like uh, gospel. I already loved gospel music, but uh, I didn't know anything about it. And so, I spent the last uh, it's almost twenty years now, right? Two thousand two. Yeah, 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 almost yeah, twenty 18, years. Eighteen years, really. Uh, I had a I got an assignment to do a gospel guidebook in two thousand two. And I spent a lot of time on that, and it never came out. I never got paid for it, never came out. And But that really got me going. I became infatuated with everything about gospel music. You know, I think and with... I wrote, oh, yeah, so uh, the uh, comparison you made between, you know, all the heavy metal and the gospel is the the sort of singing preacher is also trying to scare you. But they mean it. It's not an act. Yeah, yeah. It's all yeah. very sincere. Well, it's, it's just a, it's, it's the intensity of it all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, who is more intense than Blind Willie Johnson? I can't think of anybody. I mean, that, Especially that. So I think he's he's the first one. I think uh, in my in my uh, Ghost Notes book, I talk about he wasn't the first guy to ever play slide guitar on a record. You know, you had uh, Reverend Claiborne from Pittsburgh. About two years earlier, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Blind Willie Davis, you know, played some slide. Right. Yeah. But when, when Blind Willie Johnson played slide, it's like he invented the dunk. You know, he was like Dr. J. Like, yeah. Remember in basketball, everybody's playing basketball. All of a sudden, Dr. J comes out. It's like, holy crap. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then after that, everybody wants to everybody wants to dunk all the time. Well, Blind Willie Johnson is the direct, you know, link between Blind Willie Johnson and Jack White, Jimmy Page, Wayne Allman, Johnny Winter. Uh, any slide guitar player you could think of, they all started, they all got their cue from Blind Willie Johnson. Yeah. And and now he's, so that's, his music is floating out think, past the solar system, maybe to be <laughs> discovered by aliens someday, and it's going to freak their being, you know? It's going to totally blow their mind. They should send some Washington they, Phillips they music up there, because I bet if any extraterrestrials hear that, they're, oh, they're, yeah. they're going to feel right it. at I'm home, sure. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they've already heard it because I. That's one of the things too is I try to get in. I try to get into Washington Phillips' mind, and I went to his house once, 
Birch House was. And I just, I sat out there, I was in my car for about an hour, because I was always afraid someone was going to shoot me. You always hear gunshots out there, you know? Oh, wow. Uh, people hunting, that yeah. sort of thing. But I sat in my car, and I went out, and I went to where his team was, and I looked, I looked up in the sky, and I thought, this is where he played. Yeah. He sat on this porch right here. This is what he saw. Yeah. And I swear, he, he, could, he could totally understand that he was really playing for the heavens. Yeah. He was really trying to reach the stars. You can like, really hear he those already, stars. What are they doing in heaven today? Why sin and sorrow are all done away? Peace is bound like the river, they say. What are they doing right now? I'm thinking of friends. Yeah, and you know, like Dwight Willie Johnson, his records in a, in a spacecraft that's going out out outer space. I think Washington Fields won. You know, he won his music to go there naturally. Yeah, it's yeah, a, yeah through like psychic uh, celestial. Yeah, it, I, celestial is the best way to describe the sound of his uh, his playing. Yeah, well, there's there's all sorts of descriptions that uh, someone said it sounds like uh, heaven's ice cream truck or God's ice cream truck or something I love like that. that. Oh the, yeah, the children's music box. But the one of the quotes I had was uh, Owen Ashworth. He's got a, uh, an, uh, an actor. I don't know if he's called an actor. He's a musician. He, he uh, records under advanced bass. Yeah, and he uh, did a whole Casio cover of Washington Field stuff. Yeah, yeah. He said the thing that gets him is it's such a effort to connect in that music. And it's so true. Washington Field is trying so hard to connect, and He's, it's loneliness, but it's also you know, trying really hard. And there's another guy, uh, uh, Aaron Blount. He had a band called Knife in the Water. And he he was a really good person. He gave me a lot of stuff. I actually, I actually kind of stole something that he told me. And he said it's simple. His music's simple, almost to the point of being psychedelic. Yeah. And I was like thinking, like, what? He's right. It's so simple. Yeah. It's almost like if you ever, if you're a fan of J.J. Kale, the, the, the guitar player from from Tulsa, mm-hmm. I am. He plays so soft. He plays his groove is so soft. His guitar is so soft, but it kicks ass like and it, it kicks ass like Kirk Hammond or something. You know? Right. It's just like it's, it's it blows your mind in a metal way, but because it's so soft. And I think that's what they. I like when the musicians flip the dynamics when they're not. It's not all about being loud and uh, and forceful and you know amp, over amp, over amped up. You know, it's it's also about you know connecting. Right. That's a, it's all about connecting. Right. And that's the thing that like kind of comes across, you know, in all these artists you're mentioning, but especially with Washington Phillips, is like deep sincerity in what he's saying and what he's playing, and it's like immediate. Yeah. You know, like. Uh, I remember the first time I heard Washington Phillips, it like stopped me in my tracks because I'd never heard anything like that, you know? Right. I was just going right. to say the first time I heard it, I stopped in my tracks because you were playing it. That's right. At your house. Right. And I, oh, really? I completely lost my train of thought, forgot what I was doing, and I just had to sit down and soak right. it in. Yeah, we were sitting around the table, what? and I just put it on the stereo, and um, yeah, it's incredible. What song? What song um, was it? I what, believe you it the first was, you I think it, the first one I heard, I think, was What Are We Doing in Heaven Today? Um, uh-huh. I walked in on Train Your Child. Yeah, yeah. Before that's I even right. heard him oh, okay. sing, I I just I, I heard 
you know, his voice speaking. That God, the Solomon says, train the child in the way that she should go, and when he gets old, he will not depart from it. Lots of people in the world, of course you cannot blame them. God have given them children, and they don't know what to train them. When you educate an untrained child that's brought up full of sin, it's just only got sense enough that the forge notes and go to the pen. Let us train our children and try to keep down so much sin because it'll be too late to cry when you see them going to the pen. Lots of those little womanish girls that think themselves to be grand, they will stand on the corners at night making dates with a married man. The old little mannish boy with a hat sitting on one strand of hair will go marry some woman's nice little girl and ain't got nowhere to carry her. Education is all right. I will tell you before you start. Before you educate the head, try to educate the heart. For me, it was that song, uh, uh, A Mother's Last Word to Her Daughter. Oh, man, that's a great one. That, by and by, by and by, I'm going to see the king. I was just singing that, that before we started this interview. Yeah, it's great. By and yeah. by, I'm going to see the king. By and by, I'm going to see the king. Lord, I don't mind dying because I'm a child of God. That's the one that really hooked me. And I... I got a. Uh, I, I discovered uh, the music of Washington Phillips, Blind Willie Johnson, and Arizona James the same day. Oh wow! A, uh, I was a music critic for the Austin American Statesman. Mm-hmm. I get in the mail this, this uh, CD. It's called Amazing Gospel. It was a kind of a knockoff, uh, you know, British, but they don't really get the rights. They just put out a CD and they don't care. Uh huh. Right. You, know, you know, they don't care about rights or anything like that. Yeah, I've so, got a few. And of those. those three. Those three. Uh, Actually, the ones that really stood out to me, but I had no idea they were Texans. And then, you know, one by one, I, I find out that Arizona Drains is from Texas, you know, and Washington Phillips, and Johnson. And they all had so these connections with each other, you know? Yeah, and they all, they all, there's only one song they all recorded, and that's By and By, I'm Going to See the King. Yeah. Uh, through different different titles. I mean, Washington Phillips called it that, you know, Mother's Last Word. Right, daughter. right. And then um, the Carter family did that song, too, I Wouldn't Mind Dying. Or it's the same melody, at least. I mean, they're different. Some of the same lyrics but, yeah. as well, yeah. Uh, yeah. I well, Arizona Dying Drains is the first one to do it. Yeah. Blind Willie yeah, I think Arizona Drains is the first one to record it. Right. No, uh, Arizona, Arizona Drains recorded first. Right. Oh, okay. Right. She was 1926. <clears throat> I think she wrote that song. Wow. Because they, they, when when uh, when Blind Willie did, they said it was a cover of Arizona Drains. Yes, sir. That's all right. Um, <laughs> you mentioned. I mean, the, I mean the dry throat. <laughs> 
You mentioned Quit talking a lot. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's all right. No, that's you okay. Me, this is great. Um, you get me wound up on this. Yeah, you mentioned uh, that Washington Phillips uh, definitely or probably knew Blind uh, Lemon Jefferson, which I thought was really interesting. They used to play yeah, he did. fish fries together. Yeah, he was a, he was a, they were in a group together. Wow. And uh, the way I found that out is that I was reading this. Uh, Alan Governor I had a, a book. Uh, what it's called. But he interviewed uh, a guy who was 106 years old. Wow. And the guy was saying he used to go see Blind Lemon Jefferson and play with Washington Phillips and his brothers, uh, Tim and uh, and Doc. And nobody knew, there was nothing about Tim and Doc. Nobody ever did the research. Nobody ever did looked at the census records or all the other stuff. And so when I found out that Washington Phillips had a brother named Tim and Doc, and then that quote was out there, I, that, that's got to be real. Yeah. There's no way this guy could have made up Tim, Tim and Doc. Yeah. So, but you know, they're they're from the, uh, they're both from Freestone County, and if you were a great musician in a county, small county in Texas, word got around. Right. People knew who you were. You know, I mean, Blind Lemon Jefferson is one of those guys that so important. You know, him, him and uh, Blind Willie Johnson used to compete against each other. In Hearn, Texas, according to this study, Adam Booker, mm-hmm. they play at different street corners, you know. <laughs> and I could totally see that. It was just yeah. the way you made money. If you were blind, the way you made money was either as a beggar or a musician. Right. That was it. Yeah. And so these wow. guys, and Washington Fields wasn't blind, but he was, he was on a farm by himself, and he would play. He'd probably play twelve hours a day. Right. He'd, he'd, the, the kids said he would. He would always be playing in his in his mule cart. Yeah, he'd have his he'd have his zithers up there and play. And he said they said he wouldn't even have to uh, uh, use the uh, what do you call those the reins. Right, the donkeys would the donkeys just go on knew. their own. And he'd be selling yeah. his uh, plums and his his oils, oils and herbal remedies and yeah. and yeah. whatnot. Uh, it's weird too because I, I, three different three different people told me that that he smelled like liniment oil. He had yeah. that real heavy. He used to oil is you know he was real black. Uh huh. And he used to just put all this oil on him, and it's kind of weird that people remember that about him. And, and he's kind of a mystic too. He sold, he sold herbal remedies. Right. That was and, a detail uh, that was really striking to me. Is that he was covered in yeah liniment oil, like he's anointing himself or, or just keeping yeah. keeping moisturized. I guess is the other part of it. You know. Sure. I mean, he was a he was a small town Texas eccentric. You know. Right. Right. Like one with a lot of one with a lot of talent. Yeah. And I, I, well, you know, what I was trying to do too with, uh, I was trying to figure out like, how did he get, how did he get this idea to, to play music that way? Like what? Yeah. You know, just, he seemed to be fully formed out of nowhere. I'm and thinking why, it was the stars. And, yeah. 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 I mean, it could have been, but I, I found out that his, his grandfather was from Kentucky mm-hmm. and they had a lot of, uh, they had a lot of camp meetings, uh, in the 18, early 1800s. I think it was called the, uh, the Great Awakening, and that's when black people started going to church services for the first time. And right. you know, Washington Phillips—he's got a little bit of the Appalachian kind of instrument instrumentation to his music. So mm-hmm. 
I think maybe his his grandfather might have been a musician, and that's where he got it from. Yeah, that would make a lot of uh, sense because it does seem to, um, you know, you listen to other artists from from that region of Texas, and it he's definitely doing something, yeah, unique, and it seems nobody like, sounds like him. Nobody, yeah. nobody sounds like him either before or since. Yeah, you know, there's nothing else so, like. So him. he came up the whole he came up the whole thing himself, and was a total virtuoso. It wasn't just that he had an instrument that, that he made himself that nobody had heard before. He was, nobody can duplicate to this day. They know yeah. about it. People are playing zithers 30, 40 years. They can't do what he did. No, with two hands doing accompaniment yeah. and the melody, it's, it's um, yeah, psychedelic is, is yeah. a good word. You know, it's uh, it's incredible. Yeah, nobody can come close. Nobody comes close to what he did. And then also singing on top of that. Yeah. No overdubs. You know, no overdubs, no, uh, oh, let's do another take. Uh-uh. That's the other incredible thing chance. about that weekend with Frank B. Walker is those are first takes that you're hearing. Like, yes, that's single the first, takes. That's the first thing yeah. he's hearing. That's well, the first thing you're hearing, yeah. Uh, no, I will say there were, there were two takes. Oh. They, they did two takes in most songs, but they, they only used the first take on, on almost every occasion. Right, right. Like, yeah. they on the recording, if you look in the book on the Washington, uh, it'll say, sometimes it'll have two takes. It'll say first take. And it'll it'll say use this one, right? You know, next to it. So I think they would go through two, but <clears throat> when they made the record, they actually had to use they had to burn it into an, an actual record, you know. Yeah. So it was not. Uh, they Just, didn't want to use too many of those records. Yeah, right? it was straight to lacquer, right? Probably. Right. And, and it was a new, well, a brand new process because it was acoustic recording before, you know, and then. Um, yeah, the I can't the remember. First the electrical. Name. Yeah, it was the first electrical recordings. Yeah, uh, Viva Viva Tonal. Viva Tonal. That it actually started. It. Yeah, and Frankie Walker had used it once before, in uh, I think in New Orleans. So he was fairly new to it. Yeah, you know? and that's why I think, like I tried really hard to find out. I would give anything to find out where those records were made. Yeah, Fly you know, Willie Johnson, uh, Washington Phillips, Lillian Glenn. Uh, Coley Jones, all these incredible musicians. Oh yeah, Coley Jones. Made, where, did, where did they all do this? Where, where was that first that first weekend? Where was it? And I've been looking all over, never found any evidence. And so I finally figured out. Well, I didn't figure out. I just guessed that Columbia Records had three storefronts next to each other. Mm-hmm. So there were there were two thousand, two thousand two, two thousand four, North Lamar yeah. Boulevard. Yeah. And so I just I kind of figured like. I figured that's probably where they did it because they had a, uh, you know, they had the new the new uh, electronic system. They had three storefronts. They had plenty of room, and it was in a it was in a neighborhood that was had access to blacks had access to, you know, bordering a mm-hmm. black neighborhood. Right. So I kind of figured that was probably it, but that it doesn't matter. That building's been turned torn down anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing all the stuff that's been lost. Yeah, it really is. But it's incredible that it ever happened in the first place because there was a boom with race records, you know, like, um, there was some sort of like niche market or like, you know, capitalistic, um, you know, uh, imperative to like get in on this market and in the process of doing that, like documented all this music that might've been lost forever. Um, you know, uh, well, you know, the first the first four years of, of recording blues recordings, almost all the records were women. Singers were women. Right. Because Mamie, Mamie Smith had the first hit, right, 1920. Mm-hmm. It was like the 100th anniversary of Mamie Smith.
100th anniversary of the, of the uh, black recording industry. And nobody, they didn't think that blacks would buy records because records were 75 cents each. Right. But then Jamie Smith comes out. It's uh, $9 today. Yeah. Wow. So it's like going to pay $9 for 45 today. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so uh, but it was a magical, it's a magical thing to have, be able to have music in your own home. It's nowadays you take it for granted, but back then it was, was kind of like you're, you've got something special here, right? But uh, she sold about uh, more than half a million, and it turns out that black people actually bought records at a greater frequency than whites. You know, they had moved to the cities uh, for during World War One for jobs, mm-hmm. and so you had this whole, uh, you had this whole you know, urban migration of blacks to the cities and then Amy Smith hits hard and for the, uh, the first like uh, you know Bessie Smith Ma Rainey uh, Sippy Wallace Ida Cox uh, Victoria Spivey you know it was almost all women at first and in fact uh, there was a guy in Papa Charlie Jackson in 1924 he advertised himself as being as good as a woman <laughs> wow <laughs> Which, it's, nowadays, it's, it's totally flipped, you know, nowadays it's, like, it's sort of like, you know, men are, uh, you know, have the uh, superior edge, you know, right. when it comes to blues. That's incredible. Yeah, I wonder why that is yeah. that, um, you know, women were the first, you know, forebearers or well, whatever. Cause, cause Ma- well, because Mamie Smith had the hit, so they wanted to copy it. I guess, yeah, 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 sense, people, yeah. Yeah, so they, they thought that's what they want, and they, it was selling all the... In fact, it was like four Smiths. There was Clara Smith, there was Sarah Smith, there was, you know, all these women, they all, all had these hits, and it was all the same sort of, it was a piano mm-hmm. and, a, and a woman singing. And then, really, the Blind Lemon Jefferson is the one who changed all that, though. Right. In 1926, mm-hmm. he he did La, uh, Long, Lonesome Blues, I can't remember what it's called now. That's a, yeah. And uh, Black, Black Snake, Black Snake Black Moan Sna- and all this stuff. Yep, yep. In 1926, then all of a sudden, everybody wanted a guitar. The women, the women with the pianos is over with. Now it's all guitar. It's all country blues. Yeah, like uh, yeah. like Gishi Wiley and, and L. V. Thomas as well. You know. Yeah. I think so, yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to remember from um, things I've read, um, they were playing fish fish fries in that same area at the same time. I wonder if they had any um, interactions with Washington Phillips or uh, Blind Lemon Jefferson or Blind Billy Johnson. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure they did because they were all chasing money. Right. You know, that was... It was a, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a, it was a living, it wasn't a way of life, you know. Right, yeah. That's, they, that, they, they wanted, they had to make money, they had to feed themselves and feed their families, and that's why, that was the impetus for playing music in the beginning. It wasn't an art at all, it's just, right. you gotta make money. Yeah, exactly. So they would go to wherever, whatever it took, but, you know, they would go to the towns when the cotton came in, and then every, all the workers had money, and they would go to the towns and, you know. That whole adage about the night people's job is to take the day people's money. <laughs> you 
Yeah. Yeah, it's a big, that, that's a circle of life, as they say. You know, you can see like in Marlin, where Blimey is kind of known as, you know, the Marlin, you can see the setup. You can actually see exactly where they, what street corners the musicians played at. It was all, it seemed to be made for that sort of thing. Right. These warehouses where, where you know, in, in uh, kind of a, a boardwalk, you know, wooden sidewalks out there. And, but they did the movie uh, Lead Belly, I think in 1976 with uh, Roger Mosley. Mm-hmm. They used they used Marlin as the as uh, Shreveport. As uh, what's the street called Fannin Street? Mm-hmm. So Marlin and Marlin in the 70s was still like was like uh, Shreveport in the 20s. Wow, wow. It's an interesting town. If you ever come to Texas, I I would suggest going to Marlin. I I might. My dad lives out in Texas, so maybe uh. Maybe next time I'm out there, I'll go. I'll go check it out. Yeah, I've been known yes, to go to Texas once in a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one. Thing, that's one of the perks. The, one of the perks of what I do is that I, I also love to drive to small towns and find the places to eat and where the weird used stores. You know, like oh, that's the other thing too. That when I did the Washington Phillips, uh, when I went to Teague, they had the best junk store you've ever seen. I mean, it was it was so full of junk. Wow. It, was, it went on forever, and the guy who owned it, his father uh, used to uh, deal with Washington Phillips. He used to buy hogs from him. Wow! And go to Dallas and sell them. And he he had all kinds of stories. And that was when I was there. I, I went to the junk store. I went, oh my god, I'm going to find a, I'm going to find that man's mandarine in this goddamn junk store. So there's yeah. somewhere. I you... I spent like seven hours, and I found I found anything that looked like an instrument. I bought, you know. Sure, it's pretty yeah. cheap, but he had some weird stuff. But nope, no mandarin. That Mike, would have been a fine, though. Michael, you got to find that mandarin. I got the snuff bottle, but I'd rather have the mandarin. Yeah, right. Wow. I wonder where that ended up. You know, um, I have no idea where it. Could you know, have... who knows? Maybe someone, maybe someone will turn up. But that's the thing. You always have that daydream when you start off working on somebody, working on a story that you're going to find a box full of posters and letters and a guitar neck and you know mm-hmm. something else you never give you know you, you end up driving for six hours and you find a uh you know an address in the in the city directory and you drive back home and that's that's enough you know, yeah. that's enough because yeah even if you find even if you find nothing that's something yeah you at least you at least looked under that rock you know yeah yeah and i've i spent a lot of time it seems futile but it's not it's not. It's just like okay, I'm done with that. I've done that one. Now right. I got to do this one. Right. Yeah, you got to do what you so, got to do. I'm, I'm, I'm really, so glad you do what you do, Michael. Yeah, I think that really shows in the book. You know, like, um, you know, nobody else is doing this kind of uh, research. You know, and uh, it's very valuable. You know, because uh, time is running out with a lot of these folks who knew these people, and um, yeah. It's it's, uh, it's, mean, it's imperative to do, I think, you know, to document these really important artists. And, yeah, I think that you know, urgency lot, really comes comes through in your writing. Well, and you, you, have to, you have to be willing to talk to old people and listen to a lot of bullshit. <laughs> yeah. You know, to get the good stuff. Right. That's the thing. Is it, you, know, you got to knock on doors and you got to – you can't just be on your computer. You got to go out there and, you know uh, – Go to these, I mean, the most boring places in the world are, are uh, court, uh, what do you call the uh, 
court, uh, not the, the little offices at the bottom of the courtyard where you find the deeds and all that other stuff. The county clerk's office can be so boring, but if you're doing research, it's the most exciting place in the world, you know? Right. Because, because that's where you're going to find the good stuff. Right, yeah. like who Washington yeah. Phillips actually was, you know? He didn't pass away in um, an insane asylum. Well, to me, that was, to me, that was, a, that, that was important because it, there was a real mythology about him. Right. You know, so. Right, that he was like That's some, why it worked out. Like, he was a weird guy from all the people you've interviewed, but he, you know, he wasn't that guy. He wasn't, like... He wasn't clinically insane. Yeah, or, um, you know, like, this tormented... From all I've read, you know, he doesn't seem like a a tormented figure or something like that. He seems like a, like a, um, you know, like a... A funny uncle. Yeah, a funny uncle or an eccentric member of the community and a beloved member of the community who was, like, very involved in Sunday services and... You mentioned he sang um, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, which, uh, you know, I'd love to hear some of his other songs. You mentioned that he did secular songs at these these fish fries, you know, um, but he didn't record those ones because, you know, I think... Because he was a gospel artist. Yeah, and those were the more important songs to get out for him, you know? Um, Um, That that, that was a a hardcore rule back then. You did not do both. He right. chose either gospel or blues. Right, and he yeah. chose. And it's weird too because his biggest hit, his biggest hit, has blues in the title too. Oh, that's yeah, true. Blues. Yeah. Every man don't understand the Bible like, but that's all. I tell you my soul, but you better have Jesus. I tell you my soul. Well, the nominations have no right to fight. They ought to just treat each other right. And that's all. I tell you, that's all. It's not really, I don't think it's a blues song. It, you know, but it's interesting, that song, too, that uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp recorded that one. Right. That's all. She, she called it, it She called it. That's All. Do you think you she play music? You play music on the show? Yeah, we do. Huh? Yeah, we'll be dropping in songs uh, throughout. Yeah, play that, play that, uh, play that sister is out of doing uh, her version of Denomination Blues. And here it is. Called That's All. <laughs> She ever played electric guitar on oh, wow. a record? Was what she was on that's all. But if you have the electric version, there's two versions. Once she's playing acoustic guitar, then she plays electric guitar in 1941. We'll play the electric. She's a great artist, though. She sure is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Also, another one of those first rock and roll artists, you know, that really sort of typified the form, you know. Um, yeah. I wonder how she heard, you know, like a lot of those earlier stuff I wonder how people came across Washington Phillips you know um, yeah especially with like Sister Rosetta Thorpe before there were any reissues or anything like that well she was a church you know she was in the church and uh, Washington Phillips was probably you know pretty well known his music was probably well known in the church right uh, I don't know it's just probably one of those songs that uh, people sang yeah she picked up on it's not it's not an exact cover it's just she right. kind of uses just parts of it right but enough enough that it 
that that's all is the it's the hook and that's that's all the hook and the denomination blues too. It's right. true, yeah, yeah. She's the skeleton and some of the meat. Yeah. Hey what what time are you guys in? You're in Seattle? Yeah. Yeah, we're we're in Olympia, so yeah. It is uh 7:33. Oh, Olympia is a cool town. Uh, it sure is. I like Olympia a lot. Yeah. It's a great music town. Uh we're right here in downtown, uh looking out on 4th Avenue if you know where that is. Sort of the main drag. You know what I really like there is that place that uh that uh BFW Hall is downtown. Oh yeah, the Eagles Hall. Hey. Oh. Miles? Oh, just a mi- Oh gosh, I just no, sorry. I just hung up on the guy we're interviewing. We're we're just wrapping it up. Hey, oh, sorry. It's okay. Hi. Um, Camille, let's know what your favorite color is, Miles. Green. Keith says green. Okay, she's making a Valentine. Um all right, cool, yeah, call the guy back and then call me back. Okay. Bye. Oh gosh. I was try- <laughs> I, I I hit the wrong button. Yeah. And uh Went to hold and ended the call. Hey, fellas. Hey, sorry about that. My my wife was calling in, and I uh, was trying to end that call, and I wound yeah. up hanging up on you instead. So. I hear you now. <laughs> okay. That's right. Well, I, you you probably have enough anyway, right? <clears throat> yeah, I think so. I, um, Michael, thank you so much for talking to us tonight, and um, well, I thanks, wanted to thanks know. Thanks for caring, you know. Oh yeah, we. I think there's probably a lot of people that would be very intrigued to hear what you have to say on the oh, subject, yeah. and. Um, I was wondering if you want to plug your upcoming book, Ghost Notes. Okay. Well, it's called uh, Ghost Notes, uh, Pioneering Pioneering Spirits of Texas Music. And it's got, uh, I have all my research on on, uh, Washington Phillips, Arizona Drains, and Blind Willie Johnson is in the book, but it's it's, uh, recontextualized and kind of weaves together instead of separately. And I kind of... uh, Retrace the beginnings of the uh, black recording industry, mm-hmm. and then I have a I have a really cool uh, chapter on Amos Milburn and Charles Brown, the two piano players from the Houston area. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were really really huge in the late forties, early fifties. They're the biggest R and B artists, and I found out uh, that they were actually a couple. They were a romantic couple. Oh wow! And. How did you come and across so, that? Yeah, I mean, so, I'm sure it's in the book, um, and you know, feel free to yeah. not spoil anything. But that's a, that's a pretty incredible find. No, I got I had like three sources. Well, I had to I had to piece all these things together, but I kept I kept reading these interviews. That uh, and one of them, I got uh, I was at a record convention. and I told a guy I was into Amos Milburn. He says, "Well, I interviewed him right before he died." And I said, "Really? Do you have a, a tape or something like that?" He goes, "Yeah." And he he sent me a, uh, a CD with the interview of it, and it was like uh, Amos Milburn was talking about like me and uh, Charles. We had the, we lived in the same hotel room, so he went to one side to write this song, and I went to the other side to write this song. And then Charles Brown was talking about uh, you know they were roommates in New Orleans, and they, they were always roommates. And then I read somewhere that in R. J. Smith's book that Charles Brown was gay, and his uh, his wife complained that on the road he'd always keep a separate room for his boys. Those guys, and he'd be with her, and she. After about a year, they broke up. Wow. And then oh, I read wow. this other. I read other, this other interview with uh, Amos Milburn's band leader, Texas Johnny Brown, and he's telling Alan Governor, "Well, Amos 
was gay, but he was cool. And so I just thought, I thought, well, these guys are living together and they're both gay. Right. And I need to have someone confirm it. So I called uh, Charles Brown's manager, Hal Beagle, this great guy, passed away recently, but he, he started the R&B Foundation and raised a lot of money for R&B artists that were kind of getting ripped off by the labels. Mm-hmm. And so I called him up and I was just talking to him because, yeah, you know, they were a couple. Wow. I, I didn't, I didn't even ask him. I just, just saying like that. Oh, well, really? You know, he told me what it was, this and that. So then I talked to Charles Brown's band leader, Danny Karen, and he goes, yeah, they were, they lived together for like four years in Cincinnati. Wow. So anyway, I just, and the only reason, you know, I love, uh, I love them for their music. I didn't do the story just because they were gay. Right, but, but you know, but if, that's it, the it, story, it works though. in with their, mm-hmm. well, it works in with their, uh, how they kind of became obscure really fast. Right. And then the one thing I ended up with is like, for a while there though, they were the most talented couple in America. Wow. You know, when you think about it. Yeah. It's like a lot more talented than Steve and Edie or whatever. Yeah, or uh, you know? Sonny and Cher. Uh, I mean, Amos mm-hmm. Milburn is a first grade, first grade rock and roll piano player. Just exceptional piano player. And Charles Brown is the guy that Ray Charles modeled his whole career after. Wow. Know? So these two guys are real significant. But anyway, that's in the book. I have like maybe 30, 30 subjects. I have Rocky Erickson. A wow. chapter on him. Oh, that's great. A chapter on uh, Jimmy Bowen. Uh, God, who else? Sippy Wallace and uh, the birth of Boogie Woogie Piano. There you it's go. Real, it's, it, I have. I had a book before that called All Over the Map: True Heroes of Texas Music. This is actually this is a sequel to that, but I wanted it to look different and, and feel different. So it's, it's in a different way. Just the the chapters aren't aren't separated as much. They kind of blend together. Right. Plus, there's this great there's this great uh, musician uh, artist named Tim Kerr. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of him. I don't think so. He's, I haven't. No, I don't he, know Tim he, Kerr. He was in po- po- Poison Thirteen, The Big Boys. Uh, there's a, a record label he's got. Yeah, he's a kind of a Texas music legend, but he's been doing this really great uh, por- portrait, painting portraits of uh, mostly African Americans and uh, civil rights people, and he uses colors really, really great. And so he did all the all the art for the book. Wow, oh, which is which is good. I mean, the worst thing about if you write a book like this, the worst thing is trying to get clearance for all the pictures. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's that's a night that's a nightmare. Wow. You know? When can we look so forward to so this decided, book? It comes out, we, we have a record release, I mean, book release party at uh, South by Southwest on March 21st. Great. Uh, you guys coming in, you guys aren't coming in for that, are you? I don't think so. I don't reckon so. No. It's too far. <laughs> it's too far and it's too crazy. It's too crazy. I'd stay away. I'd, I've been to South I'd by leave, Southwest I'd, a few times. People, people and, on Segways and, uh, you know, wearing Google glasses or oh. something. I don't know. Yeah, that, once, once I had the interactive, when it was just music, it was cool. Yeah, I now never got to go other, back then. Now it's all, oh, it was, a, it was a great festival until about 1999. Yeah, when all the tech folks started was, moving in. Yeah, tech folks, and also kind of like the hip-hop sort of taking over. Uh-huh. And uh, more, uh, you know, big parties with, I don't know. Yeah, right. It, all the corporate cool parties. But now it's it's sort of like you can't really get as much work done because it's so hard to get around. But I'm doing uh, so we're doing Ghost Notes. The release is at a is at a cemetery. Oh wow! The Oakwood Cemetery, the chapel and cemetery, and it's the same cemetery where the Lomaxes are buried. Wow! When is and that? So, when's that so what, um, going to be uh, happening? It's it's 
It's uh, Saturday, March 21st, and we're getting a bunch of local uh, awesome musicians and also musicians uh, coming to town for South by Southwest. I'm going to sing songs around the uh, grave sites of the Lomaxes. Wow. You know, in the afternoon. Oh, Just whoever wants to. I mean, if you're from Ireland or England and, you know, you're into folk music, you want to visit the thing, why not do a song, you know? So yeah, we have a videographer. We have a videographer there that's going to record, and uh, it should be pretty cool. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, yeah, if you're anywhere near the Austin area or headed that way, as I'm sure many of our musician listeners are, uh, that sounds like a really fun thing to check out. Yeah, and come, come on out. Pick up a copy of Michael's yeah, new book. Yeah, Ghost Notes. Yeah, Ghost hey, Notes. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, I, thanks I really for talking to us, thanks, Michael. Michael. That was uh, really right. great talking to you. All right. Cool, man. Thanks man. a lot. Great. Bye-bye. Bye. Take care. Bye. Oh, oh, oh.